morning in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. The reading of the word. Dear Father, we um, just continue to praise you right now. Um, God, that you're great and greatly to be praised, that um, we recognize that uh, apart from your Um, active work in our lives, your sustaining work in our lives. We would have no breath in our lungs. Um, We would have no um, ability to enjoy your creation. Um, Thank you for your common grace, God. Thank you for everything you display uh, in the heavens that declare your glory um, on this earth. And um, just the many blessings we have here, um, God, we just want to continue to praise you. And most of all, God, um, right now, I just want to thank you for your word, your living an active, sharp, um, piercing, loving word um, that instructs and informs, guides us, directs us. Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning by your spirit. Um, God, would you use, um, yeah, use this text to inform and shape our hearts and minds. God, so that when we leave here, we might uh, be more um, Christ-like, we might be more in love with you, God, because you first loved us, God. So help us do that, Lord. I pray um, that you would um, that you would help me come under your word, God. Edit my words. May the um, may the meditation of my of my heart, the words of my mouth, be ever pleasing to you, God, um, our Rock and our Redeemer, and all God's people said, Amen. Um, so, how many people here like sports, like watching sports? That's it? Okay, that's right. I'm going to do another illustration then. No, just kidding. Um, no, so, so uh, uh, I, I kind of like it. Um, when I married Lori, she liked watching football more than I did, um, but I, I got into it. Um, um, not so much any, anymore, but I like, I like watching football. Um, didn't, don't really like watching basketball. I started to get into baseball. Are you guys going to watch Houston beat the Dodgers tonight? Anybody? Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of getting into baseball. It's kind of fun. Um, virtually every sport, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get into soccer too. Esther plays soccer. My daughter plays soccer and I, I'm starting to get into it. I really like it. Um, and, uh, 
not really watching on TV yet. But anyway, uh, every, every sport I just mentioned uh, has one thing in common, lines. Lines. Every sport has lines in common. Uh, there's, there's the foul line. There's the penalty box that has lines. There's the goalie box. There's the half-court line. There's, um, there's just lines in every single one of these sports. Um, without those lines, they would be kind of boring, right? You wouldn't know when someone stepped over the line and was out. You wouldn't know if the ball, you know, crossed the plane of the, of the end zone. Um, and, and we, like, we really scrutinize now with technology and close-ups and slow-mo of like, did, did that ball actually cross the line? And my favorite sport to watch and has been since a, a senior in high school, when I had uh, my, my, not my tonsils, my wisdom teeth pulled out, I was watching the French Open um, and I saw Andre Agassi the, back in 19, whatever that was, 91 maybe, um, when he had long hair. And uh, I was like, wow, this is a cool sport, tennis. I love watching tennis because it's all about like, these, these, the skill of these athletes painting the lines with the ball. And they can run, like, they can run and uh, in the opposite corner, like Federer, you know, he hits the ball and it goes in the opposite corner, paints the line right in the corner. Um, he, can, he can return a ball at 130 miles an hour. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the, the skill it takes... So um, tennis is not boring like golf or, or, or bowling. So it, it gets a bad rap. But the lines are important in it. The lines are important. Does anyone here like watching tennis? Yeah, there's three people. Awesome. Um, these sports need lines. They need boundaries. They need margins. I'm personally not a big fan of the instant replay. Um, in football, it seems okay, maybe. But in baseball, no. There needs to be more nose-to-nose fights. There needs to be more disputes. Um, there needs to be more like McEnroe-esque uh, battles with the chair umpire. I like that part. I like, the, I like just the play of it, personally. Um, but we scrutinize over every centimeter. Every Wednesday night, there's lines paint, like taped out right here where these chairs are for, for youth group, for four square or nine square. Um, and the game uh, is dependent upon those lines. Um, the outside lines are in, the inside lines are out. If you ever played four square, you know what I mean. The ball touches the inside lines, you're out. Um, would you be able to play the game without the lines? If the lines were blurry or if you squinted your eyes and you, know, you look through your eyelashes and everything's kind of blurry, would you be able to play any sports? Or if you put on glasses like the half-inch, rim, you know, half-inch glasses, would you be able to play sports uh, without seeing the lines? No. Today, we live in a day and age where lines are blurry. Um, it's hard to play the game. The church used to look more distinct than outside the church, I would say. In my short 45 years of growing up in the church, I've seen that change. Lines were more focused, sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a bad way, actually. Sometimes, uh, I ask the question, do we look different enough than our culture for someone to look at you and go, yeah, he's a Christian? Or is the line kind of blurry? Would someone even know? I ask that about myself. Um, What would determine, do I have enough evidence um, in my life that would convict me of being a Christian to somebody? There's two two main approaches to lines people have. Um, One, get as close as possible and see how far you can push them. Uh, maybe even step over a few times and ask forgiveness instead of permission. That's called license. I tend in my flesh to go that route. Or stay as far away as possible. And I think God has you intentionally marry the opposite person because I married a rule follower. Um, and, And to stay within the lines. Create lines within the lines so as to make sure you don't break the rules. 
that's another approach. That's called legalism. Um, this is what the Jewish Pharisees, the scribes did in intertestamental period by writing the Torah and the Mishnah. They called out those things, those extra biblical texts. They call them the lines within the lines or the fence within the fence. So they don't ever break the law. Maybe not a completely bad heart, but it turns into legalism very, very quickly. So we have Christian freedom on one side and rigid obedience to the law on the other. And in 2 Timothy 3, what we just read, what Elaine just read for us, we see a list of attributes that at first glance may or may not define today's line between those who are in the church versus those who are not. At least not without an instant replay or slow-mo close-up. So I want to, want to uh, first we're going to unpack, we're just going to do unpack verse by verse, and then later on, as typical, we'll... we'll um, talk about an application. But 2 Timothy, first, the context. Uh, we are continuing our series of 2 Timothy, finishing the race. Um, we're in chapter 3. 2 Timothy is a letter. Um, it was written by Paul to Timothy, his longtime young disciple. Timothy's maybe like 30 at this point. Um, I don't think anybody's exactly sure. It was the last known letter that Paul wrote from prison right before his execution. He wrote it from prison. It's a swan song. The language is personal. It's passionate. I hope you've seen that through this series. It's urgent. It's direct. Like Paul often writes, it's coming from a man who's ready to go home, but intent on one last word to arguably his most dear disciple, Timothy. We call it a pastoral letter. There's three of them, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. They're all geared, they're all written towards pastors and how to shepherd the church well, but it also applies to the rest of the church. Um, because it's all one letter, um, th- they would have read this all together in one shot. And so I've been doing that as, through this series, and I would just encourage you. Take, I've timed myself. It took me seven minutes and 40 seconds to read 2 Timothy straight through. So if you have seven minutes and 40 seconds to spare, I'm not a, not a fast reader, I encourage you to read it all in one sitting this week, and maybe every week until the series is done, because it gives us a good flow of like the overall purpose of it. And, and when I did that, when you do that, I think you're going to see, you're going to see these overall themes that we've already been talking about. Um, one thing that just popped out to me that it really hits home this week is the, the concept of faithfulness. Faithfulness is all over this book, all over this book. Uh, faithfulness contrasted with unfaithfulness um, or faithlessness, I guess you could say. Faithfulness means remaining constant or steadfast and true and, re- and remain faithful to the end. Thus, the title, Finishing the Race. It's a faithful race. It's a faithful walk. He never stops. He finishes. He breaks the tape well. Number, number two, um, oh, sorry, number one, throughout the letter, Paul gives personal testimony of God's faithfulness to sustain him, to, to remain faithful to the end. Thus, the title. Number two, throughout the letter, Paul gives Timothy personal encouragement to remain faithful to what he knows is true. It's a theme you'll see over and over again. Number three, Paul encourages Timothy to find other faithful men to, cur- to carry on the work and to weed out the unfaithful. Dan preached that about that like three weeks ago, 2 Timothy 2 2. Um, number four, Throughout the letter, Paul reminds Timothy, what keeps one faithful is a steadfast commitment to God's word. We're going to see that, I believe, next week when we talk about this, this famous all-scripture, God-breathed passage. Uh, number five, throughout the letter, we see over and over a contrast between faithful men and unfaithful men. Listen to just, here's a few examples, contrast, over and over again. Verse 1, uh, chapter 1, 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Chapter 1, 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, unfaithful. 
Verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, uh, Onesiphorus for he often refreshed me. And you, and you well know all the service he rendered me at Ephesus. Faithful. Verse 2, 2, we, we referenced that already. What, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men. And then 2.12, there's many other verses, there's many other, but I just encourage you to read it and look for that theme, maybe. Um, verses, uh, chapter 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, we will also, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. In today's passage, 3, 1 through 9, as we just read, it's obvious we see a whole mess of unfaithfulness. Whole mess. It's a warning section. Paul's giving Timothy not a whole lot of instruction, as we'll see, just warning. So let's, let's unpack it. Verse, verse 1, chapter 3, starts with the word, but, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So when you see but, you have to go back before, meaning what follows is in contrast to what precedes, right? So we have to go back a couple verses, like what John covered last week, so beautifully explaining the text. Verse 24 of chapter 2 kind of leads us into this week's. It says this, And the Lord's servant, and Paul's really talking to Timothy here, The Lord's servant, you, Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Timothy, or Paul, kind of has this hopeful ending to chapter 2 that maybe these people who are kind of been unfaithful, maybe they can come back. Maybe they can be, maybe they can be repentant. Maybe, maybe there's this hope that they can be turned back in, in, in your teaching, in your gentleness. But then it says, but, but understand this. There will be times of difficulty. Times of difficulty. Um, right away we should have two questions. Um, it says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So if you're reading this right away, two questions. Number one, uh, what are the last days or when? And number two, what does a time of difficulty mean? So we'll get to the last, question, uh, the last days question in a second, but Paul describes what these difficult days look like Right here, the difficulty is all related to these unfaithful people behaving in these ways, um, having these attributes, these things that Timothy will be facing when he tries to minister to people. Some of them will not hear him. Some of them will not repent. That's what the difficult times are. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at, like, kind of unpack each one of these words really quickly. Times of difficulty just means grievous, hard to bear, and fierce. So not easy, Right? So Paul says to Timothy, head into that. You're going to have that. Um, times will come. It's at hand. That means it's imminent. It's like right, right around the corner, and there's a permanence to it. Lovers of self, that's the, that's the first thing. They will be lover, for people will be lovers of themselves. I'm just going to kind of go through this list and unpack it. Some of it might be kind of obvious, but um, that is, this is a kind of general description, I would say, of the whole list. Uh, of this people. These people are lovers of themselves. Uh, one of my favorite Seinfeld quotes, uh, maybe I've said it before, between George and Jerry. Um, George is frustrated. He's dating this girl, and it's always wee, wee, wee. And he says, is there no me left anymore? Uh, what is, why is it always us? Why can't I just do stuff for me? Is that so selfish? And Jerry says, actually, that's the definition of selfish. Um, 
So that's these people. They just want to have me time. You know, they just want to be me. What's the matter with that? Uh, boastful means an empty promiser. Arrogant means prideful, showing oneself above others. And they may be awesome, but they're, they love to show how awesome they are. Um, kind of like maybe some of our friends on social media. Um, abusive, speaking against. Disobedient, unwilling to be persuaded. Ungrateful means ungrateful. Uh, unholy, profane and wicked. Heartless means without natural affection, and it's especially geared towards parent and, and kid relationships, heartless. Um, they use an example, like there's this Jewish idiom of storks, and storks are one of the creatures that God made are the most loving of all cre- like creatures, and there's stories on the internet you can find of like father storks um, taking care of their their baby storks all the way to the end, and or like husband and wife storks uh, traveling thousands of miles to take care of each other. Um, they're a very loving species, and so the the this people are not that way. They don't take care of their family. Unappeasable means not willing to enter a covenant. Literally, covenant breakers. Slanderous means people who accuse, not uh, without self-control, um, without moral str- constraints um, or restraint, um, not loving good. Um, these are obvious. These are all kind of like good translations for our English, right? Reckless there literally means falling head, on to, head, head into something like rash people, people who ready, aim, fire, ready, fire, aim people. You know, they just jump into stuff. Um, without self-control, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit means foolishly prideful. Maybe they're not all that in a bag of chips, but they think they are. Um, lovers of pleasure means what it says. And, and, and this is the last, these last couple verses I'm going to hang on later. But it says, having an appearance of, or hints of godliness. Verse 5, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Characterized by a Godward attitude that's what godliness means, a Godward attitude that does which is pleasing to God or piety, right? Holiness. But it, so it looks like these people want to please God, but actually they deny anything to do with it. It's just an appearance. It's just a front. And then Paul finishes the list with the only command in the section, the only imperative, avoid such people. And it seems like pretty good advice, right? Thanks, Paul. Um, avoid those people. And that could seem contradictory to like, well, I thought he was supposed to like, see if they can get repentance, but uh, there's a progression here. There's, there's first this, these people who um, have hope, they've been unfaithful, and maybe by teaching them with gentleness, you can bring them back, and then it progresses to one through five people who are unrepentant, who are just kind of staying in their unfaithfulness. And then it goes to these next couple verses where um, we'll see in a second um, people who are deliberately, deliberately opposing, not just passively opposing. So when is all this difficulty and these people going to appear? It says in verse 1, in the last days. But then in verse 5, Paul says to avoid these people. So you have to ask the question, is Timothy somehow going to be transported in the future? Um, Or is he living in the last days now? It's a logical question. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't tell Timothy to avoid people he would never meet, right? That wouldn't make sense in the immediate context. So, so quickly, I just want to kind of jump into what, what does this last days thing mean? And I just want to uh, not, not go too deep, but just kind of touch on it. So are we in the last days? If Timothy was 2,000 years ago, then it seems like we would be, right? Um, what does that mean, though? Of course, usually when someone asks you, do you think we're in the last days? They're usually saying, do you think 
uh, you know, the tribulation is right around the corner or, or, you know, depending on their eschatological view, is Jesus about to come back or is there a rapture coming around the corner? Um, how much food do I need to pack up? Am I, am I ready yet? Do I need to finish watching Stranger Things 2 before Jesus comes back? Um, stuff like that. They're, well, they're wondering if it's like imminent. Um, can I encourage you, though, that you don't have to read current events to determine if we are indeed in the last days? They aren't, there aren't any current events happening right now, earthquakes, hurricanes, nuclear threats, politics, eclipses, that put us more in the last days than we were during Nazi Germany or the Reformation or the Middle Ages or when Second Timothy was penned. In fact, the most current event that we need is right here, written about 1950 years ago. Um, and and I, wanna, I wanted to um, just highlight a few verses. We could talk about this later. There's a lot of different views, but I think Scripture pretty clearly teaches this. Um, in Acts 2, right at Pentecost, when Peter is, uh, gets bef- uh, before everyone and preaches, everyone's like, these people are crazy. They're speaking in tongues. They're speaking, they're, they must be drunk. And, and this is how Peter, Peter um, comes in. He says, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In some countries, that would be totally acceptable. Uh, Nine o'clock in the morning to drink. Some people do that. Um, But there, it wasn't acceptable. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter is quoting a prophecy from Joel, written hundreds of years earlier. And it says in Joel, and he quotes it, in the last days, he's saying, this is what's going on right now. Fulfillment of Joel. And in the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So Peter thought this event at Pentecost entered and ushered them into the last days. And the best interpreters of scripture are the writers of scripture. Peter saw this is a fulfillment of Joel's last days prediction. So that's one bit of thought for you. Um, in 2 Peter 3.3, 3, Peter's authoring this. Peter's warning his readers, much like Paul and Timothy, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. He's talking about something that was happening right then. In the last days, people will be scoffing. That's why you're seeing what you're seeing, people. We are in the last days. James 5.3, you have laid up treasure in the last days, present tense. And the last most clear verse, maybe Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, the writers of the New Testament believed they were in the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. So from a biblical point of view, I believe that's pretty clear. Um, what that means and the interpretation of that can get hazy, and we're not going to go into that um, right now. But there are several end times or last days views but I believe the Bible teaches clearly from the birth of the church until, uh, from the birth of the church until Jesus comes back, we are in the last days. We are in an already but not yet kingdom. Since Jesus resurrected, ascended uh, into heaven, and uh, the birth of the church, the kingdom has been inaugurated, but when Jesus comes back, it will be consummated. It's the already but not yet. On road trips, when we go on road trips, uh, my kids, when they've asked me, um, we just went to California in the spring, and they still ask me this, where are we, how, how soon are we going to be there? Um, when are we going to be there? And they're, you know, 20, 18, and 17 now, and they're still asking the same question. And I said, you know, I always say, we're closer now than we've ever been before. 
And that would just frustrate them further. Um, but that's what this kingdom is like. Lori, she was reading a book, and she showed me this illustration I thought was great. It's about a tulip. The kingdom of heaven is like a tulip. And when you have a tulip, you, plant, you don't plant a flower. You plant a bulb. And it doesn't look like a tulip, but you would call it a tulip. Like if you go to the nursery and you say, give me tulips, they give you bulbs. Um, and so you plant a tulip, and it's still a tulip, and it grows over time, and it grows. And it's still a tulip all the way through until it gets that blossom. And it's still a tulip all the way through. And, and that blossom is the consummation of the kingdom. And so it's very much like what we're experiencing now. We're somewhere in that process. It's been 2,000 years, and the blossom isn't there yet. Uh, I don't know what God's timing is, but it's a trust thing, right? And I believe things might get harder and harder. It probably will before the spring comes. It's a long, cold, lonely winter with a lot of hard freezes, but it's going to come and it'll be worth the wait. Um, I also know one last thing. We haven't been waiting any longer than the folks in the Old Testament were waiting for their Messiah. Abraham had a promise that one of your offspring, you know, uh, and this is like 2,000 years before Jesus. He never saw it. Hebrews 11 says these guys waited for the promise, but they never saw it. So who are we to think, man, what's taking you so long, God? I mean, they, they waited the same amount of time. So God, it's God's timing, right? We just have to trust him. So we'll jump back into the text. That's the last days. That's as far as I'm going to go. If you want to talk about it further, I'd love to. Um, so in verse 5, it says, avoid such people because they're right here. This is upon you. They're, you're going to see them. You're already seeing them. It's right here. It's not, this is the last days. So the only imperative in this section, turn away from, it means shun. It probably means excommunicating them from the church. It's church discipline. Um, it's people who are unrepentant in their sin. I think the hope would still be that, you know, if you look at the rest of Scripture, the hope is that any church discipline was always to be, bring them back into restoration. But it's avoid such people. Avoid them um, because their hearts are hard. Um, it doesn't mean continue, not to continue to pray for them or anything like that. It's just church discipline. Verse 6. For, or because, this is why to avoid them, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Um, what is this about? You know, just reading this. And um, creeping in, it's, it's, it's creeping in. And the word uh, weak women actually means silly women or foolish women, women who don't, uh, aren't thinking well. Um, they're, they're, they're led astray by things because they're looking for things. Um, so there's a pre progression, like I said. There's, there's people who have hope, there's unrepentant people, and then there's people out of that group who are actually intentionally trying to take people down, take people out, and those are false prophets. They're, they're, um, they're intentionally, they're wolves trying to attack the church. That's different than the group before who are just like kind of just caught in their sin and unrepentant and hard-nosed, but they're not necessarily, they're just passive um, in their sin, maybe. Um, but out of them can come aggressive church attackers. And that's what he's saying. These men do. They creep into households. And I was thinking of today's equivalent might be TV evangelists who are preaching a false gospel, um, a prosperity gospel. Um, and they're creeping into households through technology, maybe. Leading women astray, leading people astray. That's the culture we live in. Back then, there was a lot of widows because we talked about this in First Timothy, like how to, how to enroll widows, um, widows who are truly widows, um, who, who are really in need. 
because there were a lot of rich widows, because the life expectancy was uh, really, really low. And so um, it was just a cultural thing. But right now, it's, it's not so much there. Certainly, we have widows. But because we have more technology, better health, whatever, it's more of just like creeping into all of our, our, all of our lives, it could be, you know, through, through TV, books, internet. Um, here's some questions. Men, are you protecting your families, your wives, um, from, if they're home all day? I'm not assuming... Uh, they're not working, but if they are, are you protecting them by, by, by keeping things out of your home? Are you protecting yourself if you work at home? How about your kids? Are you protecting their eyes and their thoughts from people who would creep in um, and, you know, indoctrinate them? We should be. We're called to. Um, and then it says in verse 7, and this is describing the women, not the men who are creeping in. It's describing the women, the widows, or the people, the women, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's people who are always seeking. And, you know, we have this internet where we have, like, it's TMI at the max. It's too much information. There's just too much stuff to, to contemplate. There's too much stuff to think. There's too many videos that you have to see. There's, like, how, many, how, many, how can you have 30 videos in a day on Facebook that you must see? Like, and you're going to miss out on life if you miss one of them, you know? And that's, that's, the, that's what's coming at us. You must see this. That's the culture we live in, and that's always trying to acquire things. But are we, are they, is there any truth in it? Is there any, is there any life-giving truth in it? That's the question. They're, and it says these, these women, um, I don't know how they're, they're learning from these men, but not, not getting to the truth. Um, and then it goes to this next kind of obscure verse, verse 8. Um, Janus and Jambres says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So Janus and Jambres, you can't find that anywhere else in Scripture, those names. Um, it's an archetype. They're archetypal names. Um, it's extra-biblical texts that um, it names the magicians, that opposed Moses in Exodus. Um, So even though Exodus doesn't name them, it just says the magicians of Pharaoh. Um, Over time in history, like um, there's this archetype for don't be like Janus and Jambres. I don't know if those are the real names or not, but that's just the names they got. Like kind of like we have Peeping Tom. I don't know. It's an archetypal name for someone who does that. I don't know who Tom was. He got a, maybe he got a bad rap. Um, feel bad for him. The rest of history, he's, he's a peeping Tom guy. Uh, or like, uh, there's other names like that we use. Um, a lazy Susan? No, that's a thing. That's a thing. <laughs> I don't know if that came from a real person. Um, anyway, this woman who's in the kitchen, she just didn't want to like go through something. She had to have a spinning thing. Anyway, um, so in the same way, these, these names were, were like archetypes for people who mocked power, God's power. Um, um, and people who opposed God, and they appear in Exodus 7, 9, where they turn their staffs into snakes. They actually had power. They had, magi- they had magical power. I don't know how they, probably from, well, evil places, from, from probably satanic power, right? They turn water into blood. They make frogs come out, but they can't make lice. And then they tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Verse 8, these men are disqualified, it says. And that means not standing the test. Like if they're tested in the fire, like, like silver is, it, it, it's, it purifies silver. And, and if, they're, if they're tested by fire, they're disqualified. They don't make the cut. They're, they're not true men. And then it says, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of that two, those two men. 
So where does this passage hit us this morning? We just kind of exegeted, kind of unpacked the whole passage. Where does this hit us this morning? Um, up to now in 2 Timothy, we know that Paul has reminded Timothy of his own faithfulness. Paul says, you know, follow my example in other, in other passages. He's reminding Timothy of his own faithfulness to the finish, to stay the course. He, he reminds Timothy to find other faithful men who, who he can disciple. He says, watch out for the unfaithful, the pretenders, the imposters, the false teachers, and people who are unrepentant. And in today's passage, he says, avoid those people. So we know as church leaders, like us, we, we pastors, and, and, and uh, if you're in a shepherding team or if you're leading a ministry at this church, this, this passage um, applies more to us in a direct context because he's talking about church leaders to watch out. Timothy, watch out for the unfaithful. Protect the flock. Protect. So, so we know, you know, uh, you know the, the four pastors here, we, we can take this encouragement and really, you know, watch be watchful, and rightly divide unfaithfulness and faithfulness based on the word of God. But what if, what if you're not a church leader this morning? Um, how does this apply? Well, I think, let me take a couple stabs, I think it applies like this. Number one, if we're in the last days, now. Number two, and the people described here are not just a bunch of heathen outsiders, strangers, but actually people in Timothy and the church's midst. Paul describes these unfaithful uh, people in the same circles in which Timothy is, is ministering. People who fell away from the faith as if they were there once, right? People who look godly but are not. There's a list of people who were there but then they left. People who are trying to edge their way in the church and lead the church astray. So that's number two. So if we're in the last days now and these people might be among our midst, so number three this passage is describing in a very real way what can and could easily happen right here, right now in WCC. Number four, so if you aren't one of the leaders looking at, out at the church body for faithful or unfaithful people, then the question is, are you faithful or not? Are you going to stay the course or fall away? Are you one of the people to be avoided or not? And when I say you, I speak as a pastor, but I'm about to say we because I'm also a body part here, right? I could be one of those people. Um, our, instead of Paul, number five, instead of Paul's one imperative to avoid such people, maybe our imperative here is to avoid being one of those people. So in, in verses four and five, I really believe um, there are two underlying beliefs that these people had that kind of encapsulate maybe undergird all these nasty attributes. Two, two beliefs. Um, and I think it's their beliefs that many people here today have, maybe, maybe in this room, maybe definitely in our culture. Number one, the belief would be being a Christian means that there will be no pleasure in my life. And number two, the other belief would undergird some of these behaviors is being a Christian means I'll have no control over my life. If I become a Christian and I try to live a godly life, it means I have to give up pleasure and I have to give up control. And this whole list, actually, if you look at it, as I just looked and looked and looked, and 
trying to pull stuff out of it. And I just saw these two themes. Like, uh, if you look at it, like, pleasure is, is a theme. Um, people who love themselves, lovers of money, unappeasable people, without self-control, reckless people, people who head into pleasure without thinking about it, or control, proud people, swollen with conceit, arrogant, abusive. And I get that from the first phrase that says, um, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. People who view you can't have both. To love God means you have to get rid of pleasure. That's the belief. Or, 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 or number, um, or verse five, having appearance of godliness but denying its power, thinking that if I live a godly life, it doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't get me what I want, so therefore I'm gonna take control. So it's a control issue. Being a Christian means I'll have to give up control of my life, right? That's what, that's what they think, okay? So let's look at this idea of pleasure first. Does, does being a Christian mean that there will be no pleasure in your life? No. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, my, maybe my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. I have it memorized because I just, this is, I need it. Every, I just need it because I so often am discontent. This past, if you're a discontent person, this is the chapter for you. If you're always wondering where you should be in life and not trusting where God put you, this is your chapter. And that's my struggle. And so I love this chapter, but, um, and I don't know where exactly I'm going to go, but uh, the first verse says, uh, 16, says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And here's a verse I want to highlight, verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. But then at the end of the verse, verse, uh, let's see, at the end of the chapter, 16, verse 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Scripture would emphatically say that if you follow God, you can also have pleasure. Forevermore. It all comes down to our view of God. Is God a fun sucker or a fun giver? Is God a ref who is all about the lines or all about the play of the game? I would say yes to both of those. He's, 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 he's about both, but he has a solution. Do you view God as the inventor of the idea and capacity of pleasure or the one who is trying to rob it from you? God, a person, the one who invented the capacity for pleasure, fun, thrill, excitement, who created hormones, he created sex, he created the butterflies you get when you see the one you love, he created goosebumps, he created relationships, he created healthy competition, uh, he created thrill. Um, thrill was it a God's invention, not man's. Um, it was God who had the brilliant idea to invent both gravity and adrenaline, and since then, human beings have are in this ever-increasing pursuit to find creative ways to combine the two things. Uh, downhill skiing, bungee jumping, uh, diving, uh, uh, roller coasters. God, um, I, I can just, I believe God just thought, you know, adrenaline, gravity, they're going to love this. They're going to love this. This is going to be awesome. They're going to they're find a lot of ways to, to have fun with those two things that I made. Do you think of God that way? Um, 
I do. I love it. I love thinking about it. Thank you, God. You didn't have to do that, right? He didn't have to come up with color and music, the smell of flowers. He didn't have to do that, but he did. So if you seek and love God first, you get him and pleasure. But if you seek and love pleasure first, you get sorrow. Psalm 16, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. If you seek and love pleasure first, you will get sorrow upon sorrow multiplied. Not added. Because you'll move further and further away from the source of pleasure. But if you seek and love God first, you get both. It's the only way to get pleasure, actually. Number two, second misconception, does being a Christian mean I'll have no control over my life? Yes, it does. It does. But listen, here's the deal. The reason you or anyone wants to retain control of your life is so that you can get what you want. Comfort, pleasure, security, refuge, strength, all things God promises are in him. You want to be a king of your life so you can, get, you can set up your kingdom the way you want it. Is that so selfish? Yes, it is. Matthew 6, 30 through 33. Right? In the Sermon of the Mount, um, Jesus is talking about our anxiety of not getting what we want, not being comfortable, worrying about, you know, how am I going to afford the next iPhone? How am I going to, how am I get, how am I going to get that next vacation or that break or that raise or whatever, all those trappings of life. He's speaking into that, all those fears we have. Um, verse 30 says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you little faith? Um, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For